If you stop and think about it, most people ask the wrong questions about God. Does God exist? Why is there so much evil in the world? If God is loving, why is there suffering? What they're trying to figure out is if God is acceptable to them. Do you see that? But the real question is, are we acceptable to God? And the answer, apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, is no. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a series called The Message of Salvation. And in your messages over the past several weeks, Phil, you've stressed our redemption in Christ and His atoning work for us on the cross. And now today you deal with reconciliation. How does this help us understand about salvation? Well, Mark, each week as we've gone through this series, we've been learning more and more about salvation. And each of these great doctrines is so important, redemption, atonement, and then this week, reconciliation. And, you know, the need to be reconciled lets us know that we are being restored to something that we had but lost, and that is our relationship with God. And it's good news that God is doing that. You'll notice that in reconciliation, God is the subject of the verb, and we are the object. God reconciles us to himself. And even though we're the ones that caused the alienation in the first place, God is the one who does the work of reconciliation. I'm sure there are many people who think they're leading perfectly good lives and don't think they're alienated from God. How do we talk to people about this? Well, Mark, let me give you two questions that you can ask people. And I'll mention them quickly now, and we'll, we'll talk about them more in the message today. But first, ask people, who are you living for? And that's an answer that will help them see what's in their heart, because usually the answer is we're living for ourselves, and that just shows how alienated we are from God. And then another question to ask people is, what do you think about Jesus? And you'll get all kinds of answers to that question. People think he's a good man or a prophet or a myth or whatever they think about him. But if you don't know who Jesus is, then again, it just shows that you're alienated from God. You don't have a relationship with him through his son. Those are questions we can ask to help people see where they are spiritually, to help us know how to pray for them, and to begin to talk to them about what it means to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks. And as you said, Phil, we'll look at that more closely in the message. We're starting in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, where we can turn together now and listen to God's Word for us today. Christ's death on the cross, as you may know, is often called the atonement the word atonement has an interesting history, and it expresses an important truth about salvation. That truth is that through Jesus, sinners can be made at one with God. The phrase, at one, was used in the English language as early as 1300 to describe two people who had been brought into a state of unity or harmony after a period of disagreement. Though formerly they had been estranged from one another, they were now at one accord. And eventually the words at one began to be used as a verb. To at one, or to atone, you see, was to unite, to make, or to set at one. And, of course, the most common use of the word atonement was in theology, where it meant the restoration of friendly relations between God and sinners. Now, the closest biblical synonym to the word atonement is the word 
reconciliation, which is the theme of our sermon this morning. To be at one with God is simply to be reconciled to God, and reconciliation is God's solution to our alienation. It is part of the message of salvation, that part which brings us back together with God. The doctrine of reconciliation is perhaps most fully explained here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a fairly difficult passage, actually, so I want to state its theme as simply as I can. And this will be really the logic of the sermon this morning. Although we are alienated from God by sin, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus and has made us messengers of reconciliation to the world. Although we are alienated from God by sin, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus and has made us messengers of reconciliation to the world. And so we start with alienation. One of the most painful effects of sin is that it separates us from God. Adam and Eve experienced this already in the Garden of Eden. As soon as they sinned, there was a breach in their intimate fellowship with God. They could no longer walk with their Lord in the cool of the day. They felt the overwhelming urge to run away and hide. This was because they were alienated from God by their sin. In the end, they had to be banished from the garden altogether. And you know, human beings have felt the alienation ever since. It explains why we are so lonely in the universe. It explains why our quest to discover the meaning of life never seems to come to an end. Oh, if we were living in fellowship with God, then we would know that the meaning of life is to enjoy Him forever. We are so far from God in our sin that we cannot find our way back. The great southern novelist Walker Percy describes our situation well when he asks, Why does man feel so sad in the 20th century? Why does man feel so bad? In the very age when more than any other age he has succeeded in satisfying his needs and making the world over for his own use. We can put people on the moon... We can send rockets into the deepest reaches of space, yet we're no nearer discovering meaning in our world within its horizons than we were 3,000 years ago. Well, the Bible has the explanation for that alienation. The explanation for our alienation is our transgression. You know, religious skeptics sometimes try to figure out if God can be made acceptable to them. Does God exist? If he does, why is there so much evil in the world and so forth? But you see, those are the wrong questions altogether. The real question is not whether God is acceptable to you, but whether you are acceptable to God. And the answer, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, is no. The problem of humanity is not that we have something against God, but that God has something against us because we are sinners and hence our need to be reconciled. The reason we feel empty and alone at times is that we are separated from God by our sin. Sin is really an act of war. And since we are hostile to God, He must count our sins against us, as it says right here in verse 19. 
And the sad result, as the great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge once wrote, is that so long as we are under the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, we are aliens and enemies cut off from his favor and fellowship, which are the life of the soul. Now, it may be that as you sit here this morning, you are saying to yourself, well, I'm not alienated from God. So I want to give you two ways of testing whether you are alienated from God or not. One test is to ask who you are living for. Those who are alienated from God live for themselves rather than living for God. This is what we see in verse 15. And Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him, for him who died for them and was raised again. This verse says that those who are reconciled to God live for Christ. So the implication is if you are living mainly for yourself, then you are not reconciled to God. And so I ask you the question, are you living for God or for yourself? Who are you living for? If you spend most of your time complaining about your circumstances, then you must be living for yourself. If your chief ambition is to gain success in the world's terms, then you are living for yourself. If you do not have any time for the poor and the needy, then you are living for yourself. In one way or another, the world revolves around your access, and very likely the reason that life is not working out the way that you want it to work is because you are living for yourself and not for God. Another way to test whether you are alienated from God or not is to ask what you think about Jesus. What is your opinion about Jesus Christ? Do you think he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world? Or do you really think he's kind of overrated? You see, your opinion of Jesus Christ is one of the best indicators of your relationship to God. Notice the contrast that Paul, who wrote these words, draws between the way that he used to think about Jesus and the way that he thinks about him now. It's in verse 16. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. You see, before he came to faith, Paul looked at Jesus the way the world looks at him. That is to say, his judgment about Jesus was based on outward appearances. Like most Jews, Paul was offended by the way that Jesus died. He knew from his Bible that anyone who died on a tree was under God's curse. Therefore, for him, the fact that Jesus was crucified was the proof of his damnation. Paul's prejudice against Jesus and against his humiliating death changed when he became a Christian. Well, then he was able to look at things from God's perspective and to understand that Christ was crucified not because he was cursed, but to take the curse against our sin. The point really is this, that Paul could not understand what Jesus was all about while he was still alienated from God. He had to be reconciled first. Opinions about Jesus Christ have changed since the days of Paul. These Postmodern times, it is more common for people to think that Jesus is irrelevant than to think that he is accursed. Well, most people believe that Jesus was a real historical person, 
They consider him a great moral teacher. Others view him as a radical political figure. But these are all misunderstandings about Jesus, and they all have one thing in common. They look at him from a merely human point of view. From a merely human point of view, Jesus of Nazareth may be a common criminal, or he may be a wise sage, or he may be a political revolutionary, but he will never be your Savior. Now, your estimation of Jesus Christ is the ultimate test of your relationship to God. If you have trouble understanding why people make such a fuss about Jesus, it is almost certainly because you are still alienated from God by your sin, even if you hardly realize it. What is separating you from enjoying a personal friendship with the God who made you is your sin. As long as you keep assessing Jesus on your terms, rather than accepting him on his terms, you will remain alienated from God. Now, what I am saying this morning is that the message of salvation has the answer for our alienation. And in a word, it is called reconciliation. To reconcile is to make peace between personal enemies. It is, says Charles Hodge, to remove enmity between parties at variance with each other. And you see, this is exactly the kind of salvation we need, a salvation that restores our relationship with God. The very word reconciliation implies that there was once a friendship, a kind of close personal friendship that Adam and Eve shared with God in the garden. And it also implies that something has happened to destroy that relationship so that good friends have become mortal enemies. But you see, in reconciliation, enemies are turned back into friends. Their enmity is replaced by amity. And this is what God has done in salvation. Notice who is the author of reconciliation. We are alienated by sin, but we are reconciled by God. He is the one who does the reconciling. It's stated in these verses twice, I suppose, for emphasis. Verse 18, God reconciled us to himself. And again, verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself. And even the grammar of these verses is profound in its theology. The verb is reconcile. The subject of the verb is God. The object of the verb is us. The sinners God is saving in all the world. And what this means is that we do not reconcile ourselves to God. God reconciles us to himself. And in fact, whenever the verb to reconcile appears in the New Testament, it is always God who does the reconciling. And you see what is so remarkable about this is that we were the ones who caused the alienation in the first place. Well, God was not the one who had to cover himself with fig leaves or run away and hide behind a tree. On the contrary, Adam was the one who sinned, thereby separating himself from God. Like our father Adam, we too have set ourselves against God and his will. Now, if you think about it, ordinarily reconciliation is the obligation of the one who caused the alienation in the first place. It's up to the sinner to make amends. 
It is not incumbent on the one who has sinned against to make amends. And so one would expect the Bible to tell us that we have to reconcile ourselves to God. This is the way paganism operates. But it is up to human beings to appease the anger of the gods. You see, Christianity is a religion of grace. And the message of salvation is that God reaches down and reconciles us to himself. When we were God's enemies, the scripture says, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. God never waits for us to make the first move. He always seizes the initiative in our salvation. I think this is what Paul means at the beginning of verse 18 when he says, all this is from God. All of this salvation. It's true of election. God chose us long before we could ever choose for him. It is true in redemption that God paid the ransom we could never purchase. And it is true here in reconciliation that God restores the friendship that we cannot repair. As William Temple once said about this verse, all is of God. The only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. You see, reconciliation is a gift. It comes from God's grace. It proceeds from Him and returns us to Him. And so how does God do this? In what way does God reconcile us to Himself? And the answer is that He reconciles us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is implied all the way through these verses, and it is mentioned twice explicitly. Verse 18, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Again in verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. It's a way of saying that Jesus is the location of our reconciliation. Just to repeat the main theme of this passage, although we were alienated from God by our sin, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. This explains why the Bible generally refers to reconciliation in the past tense. There are two examples of it in these verses. Verse 18, God reconciled us. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world. The fact that reconciliation is described in the past tense shows that it is based on a real historical event, something that has happened in the historical past. And of course, Jesus reconciled us to God on this occasion when he died on the cross for our sins. Theologians sometimes speak of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's finished because salvation is something that Jesus actually accomplished in the historical past. These verses here in Corinthians contain nearly everything one needs to know about that finished work. Christ's death is mentioned first in verse 14. We are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. What we learn from this is that Christ's death was in some sense, a substitution. Christ died for all. He died for all his people from all over the world. But what was it about Christ's death that made it 
a reconciliation? What did his crucifixion do to reconcile us to God? You know, we often speak of the fact that Christ died for our sins, but often we are unable to explain really what that means. And this passage helps us understand it. Notice especially what is said in verse 21 at the end of the chapter. God made him Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Scottish theologian James Denny called this verse the key to the whole of the New Testament. And from it, we learn that Christ's death was not simply a substitution, but it was also a sacrifice. It was like the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, Christ's death on the cross atoned for our sins. Remember for a moment how sacrifices were made in the Old Testament. First step was for the sinner to find an unblemished animal, usually a lamb or a goat. The animal had to be perfect because the sacrifice could not be defective in any way. The priest would not accept an animal with a broken leg or ingrown toenails or mangy fur. It it had to be the very best animal in the herd. Once the sinner had chosen his sacrifice, he placed his hand on the animal's head and confessed his sins. This signified that his sins were being transferred to the animal. He used the proper theological term. His guilt was imputed to the sacrifice. And then the animal was put to death. It had to be put to death because it was bearing sin, and the penalty for sin is death. And thus, you see, the animal died in the sinner's place. As a result of that sacrifice, the sinner was declared righteous. In the sight of God, the penalty for his sins had been paid in full. All of this is called to mind when the scripture says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Old Testament sacrifices were intended to teach God's people what kind of sacrifice God required. And ultimately what God required was the sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross. The sacrifice had to be perfect. And so Jesus was perfect. The most perfect sacrifice ever offered. He kept the whole law of God without ever committing the least sin in thought or word or deed. Jesus As it says in this verse 21, had no sin. Even Pontius Pilate could find no basis for a charge against him. And since he was without any moral defect, Jesus was eligible to become a sacrifice. And having no sin of his own, he was able to bear the sin of others. But you see, in order for him to be our substitute, our sin somehow had to be transferred to him. And so it was, the scripture says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. God counted the sinless one as a sinner. He transferred, or as we say, imputed the guilt of our sin to Jesus. And then once Christ had taken our guilt upon himself, he had to die the death that we deserve to die. 
The proper punishment for sin is death. And on the cross, God executed his death penalty against our sin. This is what it means when it says that Jesus became sin for us. It means that when he died, he suffered as a sacrificial substitute. He bore our sins. He endured God's wrath. And he died in our place. To quote again from James Denny, there on the cross while we stand and gaze at him, Jesus is not simply a person doing us a service. He is a person doing us a service by filling our place and dying our death. And you see, now we have a whole new relationship to God. In a word, we are reconciled. Remember that what's alienated us from God in the first place was our sin. It erected an insurmountable barrier to our having fellowship with God. When he died on the cross, Jesus took away our sin. His death counts for us. And now, as it says here at the end of verse 19, our sins no longer count against us. Nothing stands between us and God. The breach in our friendship has been repaired. This is the biblical doctrine of reconciliation. That although once we were alienated from God by our sin... Now he has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. This doctrine has many practical implications. It means that we can count on being God's friends forever. It means that we are at peace with God through Jesus. A peace that will remain firm through all of the turbulence of life. It means that we can draw near to God. That we have access to him through prayer. That we are now in a relationship of loving trust. Reconciliation also means that Christians have a job to do. That is what is mainly emphasized in these verses, that God has made us his messengers. In verse 18, this task is called the ministry of reconciliation. At the end of verse 19, it is called the message of reconciliation. The point is that once God reconciles sinners to himself. He commissions us to announce his reconciling grace to all the world. The word that the Bible uses to describe our role as God's messengers is the word ambassador. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. This verse refers first to the apostles, the first official representatives of Jesus Christ. Paul and the other apostles proclaimed the message of reconciliation in the whole known world. But of course, it also describes the work of Christian ministers and indeed of all Christians. You are Christ's ambassadors, imploring the whole world to be reconciled to God. Now, this analogy works on many levels. An ambassador is an official representative from a far country, and just so. The ambassadors of Christ represent the kingdom of heaven. A good ambassador embodies the values of his country. 
And thus Christians are to demonstrate the loving character of their king. His messengers must be as loving as his message. And then too, as an official envoy, an ambassador speaks on behalf of his country. Whatever he says, his country says, provided that the ambassador follows his orders. And so the same must be true of every good ambassador for Christ. We must proclaim the saving message which is contained in the Bible and no other. Whenever a Christian proclaims the Bible's saving message, we speak on God's behalf. It's a remarkable thing what the Scripture says, really. It is as though Christ were making his appeal through us. It explains why the only true minister is a minister who explains faithfully God's Word. It's also why really the best thing a Christian can do to share the message of salvation is to invite a friend to a Bible-teaching church. Ordinarily, sinners are reconciled to God by the preaching of God's Word. It is the announcement of the atonement that turns God's enemies into God's friends. And that is what is happening this morning. God is inviting you to be reconciled to Him. And the invitation comes with real urgency. We implore you, the Apostle says. We beseech you. We plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. This message is urgent for Christians. You were reconciled to God once and for all when you came to faith in Christ. And you will remain reconciled to God forever. However, sin always disturbs the intimacy of your friendship with God. And thus there is a continual need for that friendship to be restored. You need to be reconciled to God as often as you sin. And so if you have been grumbling about your circumstances in life, I implore you, be reconciled to God. If you have been pursuing dishonest gain, if you've been fooling around with sexual sin, if you've been neglecting your family or failing in your spiritual duties, I implore you to be reconciled to God, to confess your sins, to embrace again the reconciliation offered to you through the cross. But as urgent as the message of reconciliation is for Christians, it is all the more urgent for any here this morning who have not yet come to Christ. I speak on behalf of the King of Heaven. I speak to anyone who is still at war with his kingdom. I plead with you to recognize that you are rebelling against a loving king. And one of the reasons this message comes with such urgency is that it may not come again. Now, chapter 6 begins with a warning. We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. These verses refer to people who only seem to be Christians. They seem like Christians in an outward way, but deep down they know that really they are not. And although they go regularly to church and often to hear the gospel, yet they refuse to give up their sins, and thus they are still alienated from God. This is a sober warning. 
If you refuse to confess your sins and to be reconciled to God through Jesus, then God's word is being wasted on you. You have heard the message of reconciliation in vain. The danger is that you may never have a chance to hear it again. Now is the time of God's favor, the scripture says, because you have heard that God is favorable to every sinner who trusts in the cross. Now is the day of salvation, because you have heard the message of salvation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. It's a way of warning you not to delay. My God's reconciling grace is available to you even at this very moment. If only you will repent for your sins and receive Jesus Christ. But this day of salvation will not last forever. No, soon the sun will set on the horizon of eternity. And if then you are not reconciled to God, all will be dark. And let us then pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we are alienated from you by our sin. And we give you praise for this, that even while we were enemies of your kingdom, that you reached down to reconcile us to yourself through Jesus. And we trust in that cross. We renounce our sins. And we receive Jesus Christ for our salvation. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.